you might think, oh, you just have to be good in school. You, you just have to like science. You just have to be smart. But it's not only that. It's not just that. You have to be humble. You need to listen. You know, you need to be able to get rid of your own ego, like what you think, your ego thinks, and listen to what another person is saying. So these are things that you learn over time. This is Professional Confessionals. Joining us today is Terry Alexander, a practicing nurse practitioner. Terry, how, how long have you been a nurse practitioner? Well, unfortunately, that's going to give away one of my secrets, but I may have to. I became a estimate. nurse practitioner in 1975. 1975. Wow. So that's 44 years. Can you tell us the difference between a nurse and a nurse practitioner? Sure. Uh, a nurse is a um, graduate of uh, nursing school, which can be a two-year program, a three-year program, or a four-year program. If you go to a four-year program, you get your bachelor's. But all three of those types can get a registered nurse de degree and license from the state of New York. So I have that. And then on top of that, I have a nurse practitioner certificate. I happen to have a master's in public health. And I also happen to have a doctorate in uh, public health all but dissertation. So you don't need all those things to be a nurse practitioner, but you do have to take a test and have to, at this point in time, go to a program. It happens that I did not go to a program initially because back in the day, I actually got grandfathered in, took the test, passed, and got certified as a nurse practitioner. Later on, the whole concept of nurse practitioners was more uh, familiar and accepted. I actually went to a program at PACE that was funded by the government, and it was a two-year program. It was free for me, and it was a group of 35 p teachers and people like myself who were precepting other students, nurse practitioner students, and so I, I did that program. Hell, why not? <laughs> I got released from work to do it. It was great. <laughs> and so, so I do have a certificate from PACE, Nurse Practitioner Certificate. Most people nowadays do a baccalaureate degree and then get a, a master's degree that includes nurse practitioner. And what it enables you to do as a nurse practitioner is write prescriptions diagnose patients, treat patients for different illnesses, follow them for chronic diseases. And um, th those, are, those are things that an RN cannot do. But RNs can do physical assessment, but they can't diagnose and treat. So it's advanced. It's similar in many ways to a physician assistant, but it's different in that a physician assistant has to work under a doctor. Nurse practitioners are allowed to work independently, um, not collaboratively, yes, with the doctor, but you don't have to anymore. 
It used to be that you had to have a collaborating agreement. So when did that change? Uh, recently, in the last like two years. Okay. Yeah. You don't have to. I mean, initially, as a nurse practitioner, you do have to work collaboratively, but not after after a certain number of hours. And I actually don't know how many hours. It could be 3,000. It could be 30,000. I have no idea. But I know that generally within three years, whatever number of hours, if you're working full time, then you could work independently. I am only really familiar with nurse practitioners recently like in all of my, you know, seeking healthcare uh, years, it's, it, it really never came up. It was, you know, you go see a doctor, but. Well, it, it came about, actually, historically, uh, when I was working on Lower East Side, which was an impoverished area, and not, not many doctors wanted to work there, there, there were not enough practitioners, not enough people to serve the needs of the people. And this happened in many places across the United States. And each state has developed these alternative practitioners differently. And and even today, the licensure regulations are different from state to state. Uh, Nurse practitioners started first, and then physician assistants came about later on. There was a service uh, called the Frontier Nursing Service in out west someplace. And back in like 1969, 1970, uh, when I was working in public health on the Lower East Side, we came across a, a book that was a book of protocols for nurses. So the nurses where I was working uh, and I got together and we said, you know, like, we can do this. Um, we're smart. And that, and the doctors can sign off. So that's what we did. <laughs> and then we had classes. Um, and and we, we wrote down, like, what different topics we had. So when, when, when it came time to take that test in 1975, we had documentation of all the hours of classes that we had with the doctors that we were working with. But basically it came about because of a need, a need that existed. And today there actually are more doctors going into specialty areas than general practice. So again, the nurse practitioners are filling a need. Yep. So did you go into nursing right from high school? I did. I went to Lenox Hill School of Nursing. I actually was accepted at Lenox Hill and also at Hunter. I actually wanted to go to Hunter, but they told me I was accepted, but I had to come the following year because I had broken my leg. Mm. (laughs) And I was still using a cane. And at Lenox Hill, they said, oh, we have a pool. You can exercise through physical therapy. Only the doctors can use the pool, but we'll give you permission to use the pool. I thought that was cool. And I did. (laughs) And I got to meet all the interns (laughs) in the pool. (laughs) I was very good shape. Yeah. So I went to Lenox Hill. What attracted you to nursing when you were high school? At that time, that's a, it's a good question because at that time there were two basic things. One was 
I uh, really wanted to get out of the house. <laughs> and two was, I had a choice. I, I mean, this is what I was sort of told of being a teacher or a nurse. Those were the options. I, w- I was not told growing up, you can be whatever you want to be. You could be an engineer. You could be a lawyer. You could be a this, that, or the other. No, it was a nurse or a teacher. And in my family, I had two uh, nurses. And I did have somebody who was a librarian. And then there, there were, you know, teachers and then other types of workers. So I had broken my leg, so I was in the hospital, and I kind of saw, you know, what nurses do. And I said, oh, you know, I think I'd like that. I like working with people. So I ended up getting a scholarship, and I was able to live away at Lenox Hill. So that was a (laughs) (laughs) shoe-in. And I did. I had a good time. It was fun. A lot of fun. So looking back, if, if it was widened for you, the scope of what you could go into, is there something looking back that you would have liked to try or pursue? You know, I had a choice. I had the ability later on to become a doctor if I wanted to. I had the choice of going for my doctorate in public health or going to uh, become a physician. And I did think about it quite a bit, knowing everything that's involved in the field already, working and also making a pretty good salary at the time. I decided not only cost-benefit-wise was it a mistake to go into medicine at this point, but I think I prefer doing what I'm doing, (laughs) you know, because I don't really have to feel responsible for people who are really sick, really, really sick. I can turn it over to the doctor, and that suits me just fine, especially today where people are so litigious, and you have to consider being sued. So I I really like what what I'm doing, and I think I would definitely maybe, maybe sooner go into nurse practitioner and maybe not not having to to do it the long way as I did, which was three years of nursing school, three years baccalaureate degree, two years nurse practitioner certificate. I mean, it's just, you know, people said to me, you like going to school? <laughs> I said, actually, not particularly. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what went into your analysis of the cost benefit? Oh, well, at that point, to be a physician... You have to get your baccalaureate degree, and you need to have basic sciences. Then you go for your master's in a medical degree, and then you have to do internship, and then you have to do residency in your specialty area. It's a lot of years. So it's like you'd be so, old by the time you're... I mean, yeah, and... And so if, I, if you do that, if I, you're doing that, you're not working. Mm-hmm. So I was already working and making money. I, I was actually making over 100000 a year. So, and, and there's also the cost of the education. Yes, exactly. Although my choice at that time, it was going to be free because my father worked at Columbia as an officer. 
he did research. So I actually got all of my education was free for different reasons. At Columbia, it was free where I got my all but dissertation doctorate because he, he worked there. It was great. But now it's pretty expensive. It is. If you have to go, it's very expensive. Do you see new doctors laboring under the, the costs and litigation? Do you ever talk to them or see that occurring? Hmm. That's a good question because I don't really talk to them all that much. <laughs> and then doctors, doctors don't like to talk about how much they make. But what I have seen is all of the doctors that I know are all working for groups or hospitals because they can't do it in private practice themselves. It's too financially stressing. Malpractice insurance, if you're working for a group, is covered by the group. You know, litigation, if it occurs, it's not on you, it's on them. So the, the payoff for that is that you can't always do it your way. <laughs> you have to go along with the rules of the group. So you may like to prescribe medicine over the phone to the patients that you know, but if the group says, if you're going to prescribe medicine, you need to see the patient then you have to do it their way. You can't just do it your way. And most of the reasoning has to do with potential for litigation. Well, Miss So-and-so, you prescribed an antibiotic to this patient and you didn't realize that uh, you didn't see him, so you didn't realize that he was allergic to the antibiotic? Uh, how could you do that? You know. <laughs> but beyond procedure, which sounds like is the, the limiting factor or the, what you have to adhere to, it doesn't affect the way you practice medicine, does it? Your, your decision-making, your approach to certain treatments? Well, I think there are a lot of factors that you have to keep in mind when practicing medicine. Some have to do with the rules. Some have to do with insurance. Some have to do with patients' capability to pay. Because you do make adjustments if you're seeing somebody who says, well, I don't have insurance for my medicine and I, I don't really have the money to pay for expensive medicines. So yes, you might make adjustments and give a cheaper antibiotic. Well, let's say somebody has pneumonia. Usually I like to treat pneumonia with Levaquin. It's expensive. If they don't have the money, then I might go to something less expensive, like um, Bactrim or Augmentin. So, yeah, you make adjustments for varying reasons. The reason you, you prefer the, the pricier medication is because it's more effective. Is that correct? So, it might happen, right. It might happen to be more effective, yes. Right. So, in a way, it sounds like the level of patient care can suffer from these financial considerations. Absolutely. But I guess what else could you do in that situation? And that's all has to do with our system of medicine right, in does. the United States. I mean, I visited a country recently where medicine was free. Um, well, no, medical care was free, but medicine was not free. <laughs> so they, they could see a doctor whenever they needed to. 
But then if the doctor wanted them to have medicine and gave them a, pre- a prescription or told them to go and purchase such and such, they have to have the medicine pay for it. And, and this country, the average salary is like $30 a month. So, yeah, it's a reality that exists in the world today. But, but famously, the medications are way less expensive, too. So I, I, probably not the probably, same yeah, ratio of income versus true, cost, yes. but... Less yeah. expensive. Yeah. So getting back to your your career, it sounds like it was a very straight path for you. You know what you knew what you were gonna do and you just kept increasing your education and you ended up where you where you ended up as a nurse practitioner. Were there any stumbling blocks, anything that you would advise people to avoid? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, you say I knew what I wanted to do. Actually, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I I went for something that I thought I could do, and it happened that I enjoyed it very much. And then things evolved in a natural in a natural fashion, and I kind of went with the flow of things. Now, educationally speaking, today you definitely have to be able to focus, and if you have a goal, you have to put your goal first because there can be many distractions. I can see that. I had distractions, but I did put them aside. You know, like boyfriends and, you know, my friends getting married and I wasn't getting married and different things that come up. And I mean, uh, drinking, that was a distraction. You know, we had probably different level of drugs available back in the day. And so experimenting with things like that was a distraction. Could have gotten me in trouble, but didn't because I said to myself, I got to do my homework. I got to, you know, pass that test. I got to complete what I set out to do. So yeah, people have to think about that. I mean, I, what I talk to my grandkids about my, not my grandkids, my great grandkids actually, is you got to think today about the fact that you're going to have to take care of yourself. And it's, it's not easy. It's expensive. So you have to look at number one, what you like to do. And number two, can you get paid for it? You know, you have to be practical about these things, but you should do something you love because then you'll really be able to have a wonderful time in life. You can work, but you love what you work. So go for it. So the question is how, when you're young, how, how do you figure out along the way, what do you love? What do you enjoy? You know, I see kids, some kids playing all the time, games on the computer and getting all in, excited about it and adventurous and accomplishing things. And I think to myself now, how is this, or how could this translate into a career? And I can't, I, I don't see in what way it can, you know, that's my own thinking. Yet, I know some young people from the office who probably did a lot of playing of games, and they actually are doing things with it, making YouTube 
videos and going to conferences and, you know, videoing things and, and making money, you know. So I know I'll, I'll make a pitch for my career that the reason I find it enjoyable is, number one, you have a skill that you can offer that, you know, everybody else doesn't have. Some people have, but everybody doesn't have it. And so for that, you can get paid. But in the meantime, you get to meet just so many different types of people. And over time, depending on where you work, but I, I mean, I've worked the last 19 years in a place where now the people that I see in the office are like friends to me because I know them for like 19 years, mm. you know, so, you know, it's very interesting, enjoyable, you know, there's a give and a take. And then I've had other areas where I have worked that have been similarly interesting for different reasons. Like I worked in prison health for many years, working in different prisons and also doing expert witness work and traveling all over, like New Mexico to to prisons, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and visiting prisons all over the place. Were you providing now, health services to the prisoners? I actually was doing what we call expert witness work. I would go and I would look at the system of health care in, in the facility I was visiting and look at, for example, what system they had for get, giving out medicine, what system they had for, you know, sick call or infirmary care. And then I would write a report and give it to the lawyers. And these were facilities that were under like court-mandated monitoring because of violations that had occurred. So then usually there would be somebody who was responsible to monitor that facility over time to see, are they getting systems in place that are not considered dangerous to people's health? Were there some that were truly... Dangerous? Yes. Well, I would say yes. That showed sort of lack of compassion, lack of consideration to, you know, basic medical needs of inmates. And actually, that's why there were riots in the 70s, different prisons. I I worked at Rikers. And sick call used to be held before I actually was working there. It used to be held, you know, in between bars. You know, there'd be a line. What's the matter? Oh, okay, here's a pill. You know, there was no exam. There was no privacy. Yeah, it was quite interesting. And I think uh, I feel, I do feel proud of the work that I was able to accomplish because I worked on committees. We set standards. The standards became national standards. There were books that were published you know, I think it did have an impact on, on medical care in prisons and jails throughout the country. That's wonderful. Wonderful that you were able to make that positive impact in an area that sounds like it truly needed it. Yeah, it was like a mission. <laughs> it was it was uh, very exciting. And, you know, late, later on, when I was reaching what some people might say is retirement thinking times, I said, I'm going to do what I love most, which is just seeing patients. 
So I got away from the things that I had been doing, which was running programs, actually. Administrative type activities? Yeah. I was nursing director at Rikers for seven years. I was um, at Spofford as the director of the medical program for seven or eight years. I was at the Tombs and at St. Vincent's ran a program that was the Tombs, all of the boats. I ran that program for seven or eight years. And then when I finished, I was done with prison. I said, okay, Cynthia, I met Dr. Legenza and I worked in TB. <clears throat> at Lincoln Hospital within the TB clinic with her. And then uh, she said, well, we got along so well. She said, listen, when I uh, am a family practice doctor in a small place, I'm going to bring you. So you've held a variety of positions within the nursing field. Are there some that you would recommend and some that you would definitely avoid? Well, let's talk about the advantages of working as a nurse practitioner Outside of the hospital, it's less physically exhausting. Hospital nursing and also even hospital nurse practitionering is physically exhausting. What makes it so? Wow, you got to run all over the place. And, you know, let's say in the hospital, it's more, more common to have emergencies where, you know, let's say you have to do CPR on somebody. C- CPR at this point in time could give me a heart attack. <laughs> you know yeah but nursing itself caring for patients at the bedside is physically exhausting although I I do work right now in a nursing home I do some work in a nursing home and I what I'm seeing is that nurses have become the directors of care and the LPNs or more the nurses aides are the ones that actually do the care at the bedside. It's interesting to see. And hospital-wise, I I actually can't really say because I'm not in a hospital hospital too much. But yeah, nurses, aides, and those are the ones that give the baths and clean up the shit. Are they qualified for for the kind of care they're giving, the aides? I mean, is is that a system that you think is a good thing? Well, I can say when I was in nursing school, And when I did nursing, the nurse is the one who was at the bedside giving the care, turning the patient over. We were taught to give patients a back rub every day in the morning. And when they got care at night, you got a back rub. You turned the patient over, you put lotion on their back, and you rubbed their back. It was, (laughs) you know, and I myself had an experience in my 20s where, where I had an, had an emergency operation. And I can tell you that there was a, a nurse's aide that I worked with who came up every day and she gave me a back rub. And it was so comforting to me, you know, because I was feeling like shit. I felt terrible. And I was emotionally very upset because it, it was a ectopic pregnancy that I had. So... I was emotionally devastated. So, you know, I don't see that occurring in hospitals, which, you know, I've always felt that the nurse is the one who uh, really takes care of the whole patient, considers the emotional and physical and spiritual aspects 
And uh, that's actually one of the reasons why I really loved the doctor that I work with is because she was a doctor who considered the whole person. And, you know, as a nurse practitioner, I do practice that way. Sometimes people come into the office for a sore throat, but really they'll end up sitting there crying because something else that's going on. You know, those, those are important things. So where were we? <laughs> well, we, we were talking about uh, positions that you'd avoid or recommend. Oh, well, hmm. I think it's all according to the person. Because there are things that people like and uh, things that people don't like. You know, and something I like, somebody else might not mind. Well, what, was, what was something that was like that, not a fit for you that you wouldn't consider doing again? You know, I, I remember working as a um, med surge nurse on weekends I really stopped doing that because I, I didn't like it. It was too much. I, it was too too overwhelming, actually. I felt I always felt very strained. There was another job that I did that I, I cried every day. So I stopped doing that after a while. That was working in a men's shelter. Oh. <laughs> and I was a nurse practitioner, and I was overloaded. I didn't have enough help at all. And, and there were like a million people who wanted to see me, and they were very sick. And the doctors in the emergency room said, if she sends somebody over, you know you're going to admit them because they're sick. <laughs> because everybody I said, they all were admitted. They were so sick. I saw maggots there. I saw, you know, TB. I saw a lot of stuff. But, you know, I stopped doing that because it was too much. It just really was too much. So, yeah, if you have experience and it's not a fit, don't stay. But don't quit without having something else in line. And don't burn bridges. That's important. What keeps you fulfilled, inspired, eager to do more? Well, the fact that I really enjoy what I do, number one. Also, the pay is good. That's a good motivator as well. And that enables me to do other things that I want to do, like travel, like visit my great-grandkids that are in different locations, Georgia, Tennessee, Virginia, and fun travel. I went to Cuba. I went to Puerto Rico. I'm going to Japan. Oh, all that costs money. <laughs> <laughs> Those aren't freebies. <laughs> Highlight for us some of your proudest moments and biggest disappointments within the nursing. Huh. I guess every time I graduated, I felt proud of myself. Every time I completed something, I, I accomplished. I think uh, I was disappointed in myself not completing my dissertation. However, I, um, I accept it. I accept it because it just was not important anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what about in the context of, of your work? In the context of my work, I think I'm proud about the work I did in prison health. And I think that I'm also proud of the pioneering work that I've done with nurse practitioners uh, as a nurse practitioner. I think that I was part of developing the whole career for other people. And, the, and, and I precepted many students. Now, what does so that mean? That's like uh, when they're still in school... Uh, having them under your wing 
and teaching them in whatever area you're in. Like when I was at Rikers, I would precept students who were, let's say, doing OBGYN. So I would, you know, be in the clinic with them and see patients with them or watch them see patients and encourage them. So it's like an organized mentorship. Yeah. Was there anything that surprised you about the field that, that you didn't know going into it that maybe others wouldn't know going into it? I think what I've learned to appreciate is that your ability to remember things is important. Your ability to notice things is important. In other words, being careful and being thoughtful. These are like aspects of of maturity and development that are, they're important. So listening to people, listening to what they're saying. Doctors or nurse practitioners who hear a person saying something to them, but they don't really listen, are not really good practitioners. They're not. Because you have to listen carefully. And there are people who somebody is complaining of a discomfort or pain, and just because you don't know exactly or can't figure out where it's coming from, you say, you know, just kind of slough it off. Oh, that's a mistake. That's a mistake because you always have to listen to your patient. You may have some patients who just always like to complain, but the majority of people, if they come to you with a complaint, it's indicating something. And there are some things that are like very subtle, very subtle. So you may not be able to figure it out, but you can send to other people to figure out. I mean, uh, weird things like somebody like once or twice had blurring vision. You don't just like say, oh, well, you don't have it now, so it's not important. Because it actually, I, ha- I have an example that actually occurred, and it turned out to be something quite significant that was correctable in an artery in the in the brain. In, you know, and there was a doctor that I sent this person to who, who was so smart in her area that she figured it out. There have been people who complain of an earache and have been to like a general practitioner myself, and I, I couldn't see anything wrong. Then they went, were sent to a ENT specialist to further figure it out and went there a couple of times. They couldn't figure it out, but somebody thought to do another exam. She ended up having a brain tumor. Oh, my. She had a brain tumor. So listening is important. You might not actually, you might think, oh, you just have to be good in school. You you just have to like science. You just have to be smart. But it's not only that. That's not just that. You have to be humble. You need to listen. You know, you need to be able to get rid of your own ego, like what you think, your ego thinks, and listen to what another person is saying. So these are things that you learn over time. The characteristics that you're describing seem more like female characteristics than male. I I mean, that's just what occurs to me. That's what makes women so special. Are you saying men are not good listeners? (laughs) 
I'm just thinking of the difference between male and female doctors and practitioners. And I'm just wondering if gender characteristics, in a general way, Mm -hmm. because everyone's an individual, perhaps female uh, sensibilities lend themselves to certain areas I think that that may be true. That may be true. Have you noticed such? (laughs) Well, I do notice that most... Everywhere that I work, there are women all over the place. Very few men. Uh, although, you know, uh, I've worked with male nurses and male nurse practitioners that are quite, quite good. A lot of surgeons are men. Because it's sort of a technical field, yes? Yeah, So it that, is. that male technical At, thing is, is happening there. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, very often uh, I can hear myself saying, well... He's not really great on bedside matter, but he's really good at what he does for some of the people I, I refer to. He, he knows what he's doing. Are there some things in nursing and nurse practitioning that no one ever talks about? Is there something that, that is like, I don't want to say hidden, but not widely shared in terms of it would be a a surprise to discover it down the road. Well, I think probably one thing people don't talk about often is office politics or the relationship between workers in in a group setting. Where I work, the actual work that I do is individualized. But I'll give an example from the nursing home where it's much more of a a group effort to accomplish things. You always have office politics. You always come across people who are team players and people who are not. People who always are negative, who say negative things about other people, who complain about their coworkers, who might be inconsiderate, might call out sick, There's something that happens in nursing in general where if you work at a place and you call out sick, then somebody ends up, if you can't find a replacement, somebody gets stuck. Mm. And there are people who are always the ones that call out for one reason or another. You know, so it's, it's kind of interesting sidebar of the profession. I don't know if it happens as much in other professions. I can't really speak about it. But I know in nursing, it's like deja vu, you know. And I have worked, for example, in the last five years in five or six different nursing homes. And, uh, you know, I look around and I get to know people and hear them. And there's always this group that are around complaining, complaining. And then there's always the one or two. They're the ones who stay positive. They're good to work with. They don't complain about others. It's very interesting. And people don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. I imagine that these folks were the same in high school. I don't know. Right? I I don't know. Did you know those types in high school? You know, I went to go to my high school reunion 
And I ended up, even after paying for the restaurant, not going because I realized there's something else I wanted to do more. And I didn't remember one person I went to school with. <laughs> so in high school, I can't say. I could probably talk about nursing school, but I don't know. I was studying. I graduated first in my class. So <laughs> I didn't get involved in the office politics much. <sighs> Yeah, I just, something I've noticed afterwards. What advice would you give someone going into this field? Keep your options open. Keep your options open. Don't specialize or say, oh, this is what I want to do. So for example, I would advise if you want to be a nurse practitioner, do the family track. Because through experience, you'll see what it is you really like. Keep your options open. If you, you know, work two years in pediatrics and want to move on to something else, do f female health and GYN and then do another two years in internal medicine so that you can figure out like really what you want. Because once you start working in one area, if you stay there for a long time, then that's going to people are not going to hire you for something in pediatrics. If you left it two years ago and then you work six years in regular medicine, that's my advice. Keep your options open. All right. Well, thank you so much, Terry, for joining us. Thank you. I'm honored you asked. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To hear more and subscribe, visit our website, professionalconfessionals.com. You can find Professional Confessionals on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.